Uh, Exodus 34, looking at uh, the character of God. Old Testament, let's read if you're there from uh, verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34. And the Lord passed before him, Moses, passed before Moses, and the Lord proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Shall we read it again? The Lord, the Lord God is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us through your word and through Jesus. Word become flesh. So God, speak to us this morning. Lord, help us to hear what you would have for us. Speak through me. Help me to speak your truth. Lord, be here in our midst, we pray. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I'm a Christian. <laughs> hope you know that. Uh, hope that's not a surprise. Uh, but w- what I mean when I say that is, you know, I put my faith, I put my saving trust in God, uh, in, in Jesus and what he's done for me. But when I say I believe in God or when I put my trust in God, it's not just an abstract thought, right? And not just any God, not just any being, any force, any spiritual thing out in the universe. When we say that we believe in God, we mean something very specific. Who we are talking about? What are we talking about? when I believe in God. And I also believe that God is someone that can be known, someone that we can know, that we can find out about. He's not unknown. He also can't be known, as some people think today, that God is unknowable, that he's some spiritual abstract force out there. No, that's not what we're talking about. And as a Christian also, we believe in the authority and the truthfulness of Scripture. And so what that means is that everything that I believe everything that I know about God, everything that I believe that I think about God comes through the lens of his word, the Bible, scripture, and also his word become flesh, Jesus Christ. And so when I say I believe in God, I want to I want to take what that I want to take what I what I mean when I say that, when I when I think about God from scripture from Scripture itself and from Jesus and what the historical person of Jesus did here on earth. And so the beauty of this is as we read Scripture, we come to portions throughout the story where the the veil is kind of pulled back a little bit and the doors swing open and we get little glimpses, these little pictures of, of who God is, the very character of God, not just what he does, not just how he acts and what he created and, and these things, but the very picture of God's heart. We get answers to these questions like, who is God? What is God like? What is his heart towards people? And Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 is one of those times. It's actually the first time in the Bible. We're not very far into it, just a couple pages. But it's the first time in the Bible that God describes himself and his heart, his character in this way. When he is literally using his own words 
to describe who he is to his people. This is God himself speaking the very first time in the story in this way. And this is important. (laughs) We should pay attention to this. From a literary standpoint alone, the first time we come to this in the story, that should click. Okay, this is God saying something important here. But of course, from a theological standpoint as well, what is God, how does God describe himself? How does, when, when, when we think about God, when we know God, what does he want us to know about him? And so we should pay attention to these words. And we can spend literally weeks on just these two verses. I'm going to look at just one phrase in there, and we could spend weeks on just this one phrase. We're going to spend a couple minutes talking about one phrase. The Lord's been pressing on my heart. I've talked uh, about it with the high schoolers a little bit a couple months ago, and just I can't, I can't shake it. I can't get away from it. And so I think we would do well today. Uh, to consider the rich mercy of God this morning. And so we know, we, we well understand from a very young age, the concept of, of getting what you deserve. This makes sense to us. We don't need to, to wonder about it. This, if, you, if, you, if you make a poor choice and you make mistakes and you don't do good things, well, when bad things happen, when your life doesn't go well, well, you get what you deserve. We don't feel sympathy for you. <laughs> we, we, uh, you understand that if you make poor choices, then bad things are going to happen. And the flip side as well, if you do the right things, you make the right choices, you do good stuff, and, and things go well for you, well, we, we applaud that. Good job. You, you're reaping the reward. You're reaping what you sow. This makes sense. We get it. We understand it. And so it can be a little startling when the opposite happens. It can be a little, well, wait a second. We don't, what, does, what do you mean by this? When, when we don't get what we deserve, when, we, when we're expecting something, we earned it, we worked for it or, or not, or we made the mistakes and we're expecting and then, and then it doesn't happen. The other night, a couple of weeks ago, I had to give uh, Darcy, our little four-year-old, uh, had to give her a little bit of discipline. She was being disobedient, <laughs> like, like four-year-olds do, and uh, she deserved a little correction. And so how we do it in our house, you know, we okay, we're going to talk about this. We, I'm walking her to her room and sitting her down. And in my head, okay, how am I going to explain this in a way? Being disobedient, you can't be disobedient. This is going against my will. You're being rebellious. And so there's correction, dis- this whole thing, my thoughts. And okay, she sits down, right? And how are we going to go? Okay, I'm a, she looks up at me and she goes, Dad, Dad, Dad. Don't give me a spanking. Give me a hug instead. <laughs> so I gave her two spankings. No, just kidding. <laughs> That's a hilarious request because of how opposite it is according to what she deserves. She was, she was having a good one that night. I mean, she's just like defiantly, stubbornly disobedient, going against my will in the home. But just give me a hug. Just give me a hug. See, I think the mercy of God is, uh, is something that might be a little uh, overlooked. It's an overlooked reality when it comes to our relationship with him. How do we relate to a God who is merciful? We don't know what to do with it. It, It's surprising. It's unnatural. It goes against what we think, what we know, what what we understand about life. It can be unnerving and maybe even a little bit uncomfortable when it comes to a God who shows mercy. It goes so against that order of getting what you deserve. And so I think for most people, when you... When you talk about the Christian God, especially you know, non-Christians and people who don't know God, even Christians, when you talk about the Christian God, what, what is God's attitude? What is God's primary attitude towards sinners and sin? You, know, you, you immediately jump to words like wrath, punishment, judgment. 
lake of fire, hell, you know, hatred, God hates sin in these words, which are all absolutely true, 100% true. God is powerful in how he judges sin. These are accurate representations. But what I want to do is I want to take, again, Scripture to be my lens of, of who God is. And when I let Scripture tell me, show me the picture of who God is, man, I see the, I see the mercy of God at the forefront of his character towards his creation. When God describes what he is like, in those verses that we just read, when God describes what he is like, he announces his mercy first and foremost. He announces his mercy as the primary thing. Not that he's omniscient, not that he's all-powerful, not that he's eternal. He is those things, but God's power is displayed, I think, in part by his mercy that he shows to you and me. And so it's interesting that God, God is not merciful like by accident. It's not incidental to who he is. You know, God is love and he's a God of comfort. And so, yeah, he shows mercy sometimes to people. It's also not a sign of weakness that God is, you know, all powerful and he's up there judging and, well, I, I guess I can show you mercy just, just this one time and I don't want to, but I guess I, could, I should do that. No, God is, God is powerful in his mercy. I love how pastor and author David Mathis puts this. I love this quote. God always shows mercy with utter intentionality and strength. With utter intentionality and strength. Yes, God is powerful in judgment. Yes, God is powerful in judgment, but he's powerful in his gentleness too. God is sovereign, he's just, he's holy, he's mighty, and he's good in the surprise of his tenderness and kindness and mercy. So I want to understand what happened here on Mount Sinai, these words that God spoke, and then look at a few responses in Scripture. Back to the story, Moses is, uh, is the leader of the children of Israel. He's led, with God's help, of course, the, the children of Israel out of slavery of Egypt, He's, he's crossed the Red Sea. They're wandering in the wilderness. God is leading them to the promised land. That's what they're looking forward to, this promise dating way back to Abraham. And so this is happening. They're, they're a new nation. They're being formed and molded, and it's new, and it's exciting, and it's wild, and it's crazy. And so God is working with Moses on how it's going to work, and there's rules, and there's boundaries, and the covenant, and I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And so there's a tabernacle there, and this, I'm going to dwell among you. This is crazy. This is God working, and he's, he's doing this thing with his people. And Moses is, is, gets to be the one that meets with God, that that converses with God. And so in chapter 33, what we, before we just read, Moses is there in the tabernacle. You know, it's a normal day. He's having a conversation with the creator of the universe, just chatting back and forth, you know, just normal stuff. And he's talking, God's laying out these things. And Moses comes to a, a point where he, he says, in verse 18, and Moses said, please show me your glory of chapter 33. What is Moses asking for? I want to I know who you are, God. I want to know this God whom I serve. I want to see you. What are you like, he's asking. Not what you can do. I've seen what you can do. Change the, the Nile into blood and destroy Pharaoh's army and part the Red Sea and lead us out. You killed the firstborn of all the Egypt. All, I've seen what you can do, God. What are you like? What, what is it about you that makes you you, that sets you apart from the gods of Egypt and the gods of Persia and the gods of wherever else? What is it, God, that makes you, you? In verse 19, God responds, and then God said, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord 
before you. All right, Moses, you want to see? We can't see me face to face, but I'll, I'll hide you in a cleft in the rock. I'll pass before you, and then you can see the backside of my goodness and my glory, my goodness of who I am. But I'm going to do you one better, Moses. I'm going to proclaim my name to you. Oh, this is no small thing. This isn't like an introduction. Hi, I'm Tyler. It's nice to meet you. Now you know everything about me. No, of course, that's just a name. But in, this is, God is going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, Show, I'm going to tell you who I am, Moses. I'm going to give you a glimpse into my heart and my character. And so this is great. Moses is excited. Okay. Wakes up the next morning, gets up early, climbs up to the top of Mount Sinai. Here he is. The Lord passes over him, and we, and we get to what we just read. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Here is the name. Here is who I am, Moses. The Lord. The Lord God. Yahweh merciful and gracious. When Moses asked, who is God? What is God like? How does he answer? Merciful or compassionate, some translations say. Merciful and gracious are the first two descriptors of how God introduces himself. In Hebrew thought and in ancient Near East literature, order is important. This is the primary thing that God wants Moses to know about him. Not that he's omniscient, which he is, not that he's all-powerful, which he is. Not Moses, I am the Lord, the Lord God. I can read all of your thoughts and know all of your sins. <laughs> Moses, I am the Lord, the Lord God. Not, I, can, I, I, I need you to behave a certain way so you can gain my favor. Not Moses, I am the Lord, the Lord God. Not, um, you know, I'm angry with all sinners and everybody is going to be judged. I am the Lord, the Lord God merciful and gracious. These are the very definitions of his goodness and his glory, and Moses gets to see it. I'm the God that gives hugs instead of spankings. And Moses gets to see it. The phrase in Hebrew is rahum hanun, to clear your throat. Rahum hanun. Often used together, it's a pair that describes God's character all throughout the Bible. Compassionate or merciful is that first part. It speaks, of, it speaks of, a, it's a feeling word of how God feels towards his creation. The word is used as parents and how a mother or a father would feel towards their children. The psalmists use it quite a bit in Psalm 103, for example, verses 8 and then 13. The psalmist writes, the Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. A direct quote from Exodus 34. And then the psalmist says, and the Lord is like a father toward his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. Like, like how a father feels towards his kids. Or elsewhere in the Psalms, like a, like a nursing mother who feels towards her children, a deep gut level, all out love. But did you catch that? That God is a God of feeling. God is a God who feels towards you. He's not some cold, soulless, unresponsive, abstract deity out in the universe. God is like a parent towards his children. In contrast, gracious, the second part of that phrase is the action word. We know it to, to show favor upon. God is gracious. God acts towards this. Again, the psalmist use it all across the, the, the Psalms. In Psalm 86 but you, O Lord, are merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Quoted from Exodus 34. So then, 
The psalmist goes on, turn to me and be gracious to me. Give strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. You catch the action, the verb, the, the moving towards humanity. Be gracious, give strength, turn, save. This is how God feels towards his creation. The two linked together show us what God is like. A parent with a deep gut level, intense love of feeling towards his creation. And like a parent, he rescues his kids when they can't rescue themselves. He reaches out and he moves towards them to take care of them, to comfort them, to save them when they can't save themselves. By the way, Exodus 34, I give you two examples in the Psalms, but these two verses, 34, 6, and 7, are the most quoted verses in the Bible by the Old Testament. Over and over and over and over again, the psalmists, the prophets, the narratives reflect on these words from God himself, talking about his mercy and his grace. So we can talk for hours on this, but what do we do with this then? Okay, so God is merciful and gracious. He acts towards us like a parent does his children. I want to look at three responses to this rich mercy of God throughout Scripture. Number one, King David fell upon it. King David fell upon the mercy of God. You know the, the story, David has sinned against the Lord. Well, not that sin, the other sin. <laughs> he sinned a lot of times. The, the second most popular sin, when, when King David was taking a, a census of the people, he's, things are going well for him. He's successful. He's won a few battles. His enemies are running. The nation is prospering. And so he goes in his pride, I need to count how many people are in our kingdom. Against God's wishes, against the will of the Lord, David does it anyway. Against the better judgment of his army commanders, they're like, David, I don't think we should do this. David says, no, go do it. The army commanders go out. To, it's a 10-month project. They count all the people. They report back to him. And David immediately in 2 Samuel 24, David knows what he's done was wrong. I have sinned. He recognizes his sin, his mistake. He messed up. And so God sends a prophet named Gad to David, speaks to him through, through the prophet Gad. And he comes to David and, and offers three options as punishment to David. Option one, you can have three years of famine for your sin, David. Or option two, you can have three months on the run from your enemies. Or option three, you can have three days of pestilence. What are you going to choose, David? And David, he's seen the heart of God. He knows God's mercy. He knows exactly where to land. And in 2 Samuel 24, 14, David says, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord. Why? For his mercy is great. And in contrast, let me not fall into the hand of man. David knew that God's mercy is strong. It was faithful. It was powerful. It was true. And so he commits himself to the mercy of God. He commits himself into the hand of God and his sin into the hand of God. And David well knew the words from Exodus 34. David well knew what God was like. And by the way, God didn't just let him off scot-free. He chose option three, the three days of pestilence, and 70,000 people died. There were consequences for his sin. He reaped what he sowed. There are problems when we go against God's will. It does not go well for us. But he knew that it could be much worse. He knew that he should be wiped off the face of the earth. He knew that he should have no business coming before the Lord and choosing his punishment. And so he says, let me fall into the hand of the Lord. 
not the hands of men. And Psalm 51, in his repentant psalm with his more well-known sin, the sin of, with Bathsheba, David is repenting, he's falling on his face, and the psalm starts off, Psalm 51, saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You see what he's asking for? Give me a hug instead of a spanking. Man, when it comes to what you deserve, think about this. When it comes to what you deserve, what are you falling upon? What are you committing yourself to? What are you doing with that mistake, with that sin, with that? See, it's tempting to fight our way to justification. Ah, uh, yeah, okay, I made a mistake, but if I, if I only did this, or you know, if I acted, okay, if I say these words, and well, they're not completely innocent either, and if my circumstances were a little bit different, and if I got this and that would work out, then I could be justified and be made fine and be fine. I don't need mercy. It's tempting to justify our, our ways to mercy, justify ourselves. If I just do this or think that, I think it wise to be like David and throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. Well, if David fell on God's mercy, Jeremiah found hope in it. A few hundred years later, it's the worst possible scenario for the children of Israel. Moses' bleakest vision has come true. They've destroyed the covenant which God made with them because of their sin, their rebellion, their disobedience, all is lost. They're actually being carried away captive to Babylon. The nation of Israel that God set up is destroyed. It's broken. It's fallen apart. It didn't work out. And so the, the prophets are lamenting. It's the most darkest, hopeless time in Israel's history. And Jeremiah writes the most depressing words in the Bible. <laughs> the book of Lamentations. When all hope is lost... He's lamenting the fate of Israel and where their sin has brought them, the lowest of the low. And yet again, we get a glimpse of who God is as Jeremiah writes these words in Lamentations chapter three. Remember my affliction and my roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. How depressing, Jeremiah. <laughs> this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. Therefore, I hope in him. In the darkest times, in the, in the times where we would feel tempted to, to abandon all hope, the prophet points to the mercies of God as the key to his hope. In the times where we would be hopeless because of our sin, because of our mistakes, because our life's not going how it ought to go or how we think it should go because of our brokenness, we lose hope, we give up, we throw up our hands. Jeremiah says, no, his mercies are new every morning. We are not consumed because his compassions fail not. And I love what Jeremiah is doing. He's keying in to the future work of Jesus on the cross, that through God's mercy, we are not consumed. Through God's mercy displayed in Jesus on the cross, we have a hope of salvation, of eternal life. We have a hope of not being consumed. We have the hope of not getting what we deserve. Jeremiah is keen in on that, that the mercy of God towards humanity is going to bring salvation and eternal life. Guys, our sins are many. Our sins are many. Sometimes weeping is needed. Sometimes lament is needed, but his mercy is more. Our sins are many, but his mercy is more. As the poet Jeremiah says, they're new every morning. 
And for that we have hope. When it comes to what you deserve, where do you find your hope? When it comes to what should be coming to you, what are you hoping in? What are you longing for? Maybe better circumstances. If I just get that job, or if I get that bonus, or just go to that school, or that change, get those friends to get, and things will be better. Maybe it's a pity party. <laughs> the guilt, the shame. I don't deserve any of this, so I'm just going to sit in my depression. Maybe it's just an awareness, that, that, that sense of hopelessness because of the depth of my sin. I think it wise to take a cue from Jeremiah, to cry out and weep for the mercy of God because in that we have hope, we have a future, as Jeremiah says later. Well, if David fell upon it and Jeremiah found hope in it, lastly, Paul marveled at it. On the other side of Christ, now hundreds of years later, in Jesus, we see the very embodiment of God's mercy. Jesus didn't come to just tell of the mercy of God. Jesus didn't come to just tell other people to live, you know, little, little pictures of God's mercy and show mercy on your neighbors and stuff. Jesus didn't come to just dispense God's mercy as, as if it were some commodity, you know, a little bit of mercy for you and, okay, those sinners and a little bit of mercy. Over, I'm going to have dinner with that tax collector, a little bit of mercy over there. No, God, or Jesus is the mercy of God become flesh, God in real life. And so what Moses saw a glimpse of, what David fell upon, what Jeremiah hoped in, and now on the other side of Jesus, Paul marvels at it. He knows his ministry was because of God's mercy. In fact, he tells Timothy that in 1 Timothy 1, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy. Paul, in his encounter with Jesus there on the Damascus Road, man, he knew exactly what he deserved. Man, he, he served God. He was, he was a Pharisee. He knew exactly what God's heart was towards sin, but he glimpsed the heart of God as he obtained mercy there when he was kicking against the goads, when he was going against what, was ha- what, what Jesus' will was for his life, persecuting a blasphemer, an insolent man. He served a powerful, just God who hates sin. He should have been wiped out on the spot as yet another one of God's enemies. And why wouldn't he? But he obtained mercy. And now, post-Damascus Road, he understood the power of God's mercy the power of God's mercy, that God's mercy shows his power. How so? In, in explaining this and laying out his argument to the Romans, talking about the gospel in Romans chapter nine, Paul phrases it this way in the form of a question, not because he doesn't know, but as a, as a rhetorical form. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called. Did you catch that? God's power is displayed precisely because of his mercy, precisely in the transformation of vessels of destruction to vessels of mercy, God's power is shown because of his long-suffering, because of his faithful love, because of his endurance with sin. In my life and in Paul's life and in your life and in our lives, the transformative work of dead, dead in sin, enemies of God to alive in Christ because of God's mercy actually displays his power 
This is not some form of weakness. This is not some form of God saying, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, you can be made new. And you... No, God is, God's power is displayed in this transformative work where my, my sinful flesh no longer, no longer is, is at enmity with God, where, where our sin no longer breaks that relationship with God and with other people, where my brokenness is made clean and healed and fixed, where relationships are restored. God is shown to be powerful in that transformation. But make no mistake, God is powerful in his judgment. God is powerful in his righteous wrath. God does judge sin. He is holy. To say anything less would be untrue, would be a mistake. And at the core of that, at the core of his heart, we find his mercy. It's who he is. We find the heart of God as one of merciful, one of mercy and of grace. And it displays his heart in ways that judgment can't. It displays his heart towards his people in, in ways that, that, that power and, and wrath just can't show. Meditating on that work of Jesus on the cross, Paul says this to the Ephesians in chapter two. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in sins. God, who is all-powerful judge. No. God, who is omniscient and all-knowing and, and hates the sin and sinner. No. God, who is eternal, has no beginning, no end. No, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. He gives us a hug instead of a spanking. God overwhelmingly just showers his mercy so that we may more clearly see his glory and marvel. We should be amazed when it comes to what you deserve. What are you amazed at today? What is, what is catching your wonder when it comes to what you deserve? Man, there's so many distractions that could steal our attention our gaze, our wonder. Yeah, I made a mistake. Yeah, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I'm broken. But you know, I did read my Bible every day this week. I am, I am pretty, I do serve quite a bit. I give a lot of money to, I didn't give all my money to the homeless person, but I gave some money to, you know, kind of, you know, I'm not that bad. I don't, I am kind of mostly good. What, I, I so many false idols, so many false distractions, so many tactics that the enemy uses to, to steal our amazement off of God's mercy. What are you amazed at today? I think it wise to pay attention to the heart of God and be filled with awe when it comes to his mercy. Man, praise the Lord that we serve a God who is not just powerful, Yes, he is, but hear what I'm saying, that we serve a God who is not simply, you know, uncompromising, even-handed, just meeting out wrath and destruction according to what we deserve with, with no thought. Praise the Lord that we serve a God who is compassionate, who is, who is feeling towards us, who is love, and serve, praise the Lord that we serve a God who is gracious, who acts on that compassion, who shows favor in the form of Jesus on the cross. We know the God who reveals himself, the God who is mercy. And this is what's so amazing when we look at Jesus on the cross. We see that he does confront sin. He puts to shame sin. 
He confronts the, the brokenness and evil of our world. He confronts the lies of Satan as Jesus hung there on the cross and it displayed his mercy to the world. And we can look at that and we can say, oh yes, God is merciful. And as David saw it, I mean, as David threw himself upon it, as Jeremiah found hope in it, as Paul marveled at it, and so many thousands of years ago when Moses just caught a glimpse of it, man, here we are thousands and thousands of years later, and nothing has changed. What is God like? When I, when I say I believe in God, when I say that I'm a Christian, when I say that I serve God, what do I mean by that? The Lord, the Lord God is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And then let's finish that last verse, chapter eight. We haven't read it yet. Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Oh man, the right response to hearing who God is. Bowed his face to the earth and worshiped. What a beautiful picture of our response to the creator of the universe that shows mercy, that is gracious. Gracious. 